So this is the podcast, Drawing and Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. Um, I'm a cartoonist. I have two books published. Um, I am currently completing my third. It's for first, second. But I am also an educator. Um, I've been a teacher um, in various capacities in like uh, after school programs and summer programming for the past five years. And I think I've been saying it's been five years for about a year. So it might be six <laughs> now. I don't know. Um, but I and I also completed my master's degree recently in art education. And that's sort of where we started. That's like where I'm coming from. Um, so E, who are you? <laughs> uh, my name's E. I'm also a cartoonist, um, comic artist. Um, not published yet. You're self-published. Right? <laughs> You're self-published? Oh, yeah, self I, I self-publish mostly. Um, I do a webcomic uh, called Baby. Um, I do a lot of work about like communication and things like that. And I also have a very, like, vested interest in comic history, art history, uh, that sort of academic history and, like, how comics history fits into things and especially, uh, like, zines and DIY culture and webcomics and things like that that don't necessarily get the same space in current academia uh, as, like, Cape Comics. Yeah. So this podcast is called Drawing a Dialogue. Um, it's going to be about um, sort of us trying to find a context and like a continually finding this context for that the work that we do and also, um, at least in my case, the work that I am presenting to students and sort of the educational and the historical context in which we are creating comic books and like sort of visual culture in general. What was that thing that Mar told us? I have it written down. The we are going to be discussing comics and comics adjacent media. Yeah. Here. Um it was really and it was really important for me to kind of frame this in a way where we're talking about context rather than history. Uh cuz history is such a hard to pin down concept. Uh it it's not necessarily like set in stone and I think it paints like too hard a line to try to be like this is the definitive history of something yeah um plus it doesn't like leave us space to talk about how things change like especially comics history is so like anachronistic these days that it would be like doing it a disservice I feel like to approach it from a like less fluid way um, mm -hmm. one thing that's really important to both of us is to try to, uh, provide a decolonized context, um, by which I mean, like, trying to frame our conversations less around, like, the white, cis-normative, uh, male-centric, uh, framework that kind of, like, is used to define most academic spaces, um, Mm -hmm. And I also want to be super clear that I don't mean that we will be doing the decolonizing because we can't. <laughs> um, I mean that, like, we're doing yes. our best to, like, find sources that are outside that framework and, like, actively challenge ourselves to think outside of that framework uh, and, like, what we bring into the conversation. I've been really especially into this uh, this quote from Franny Howes, who wrote a really good essay on 
decolonizing our understanding of like comics history, uh, specifically through looking at like uh, indigenous South American codexes. Um, and she said, visual rhetorical traditions need not be unbroken chains of ways of doing. Traditions are also acts of remembering, uh, forgetting and reinscribing and reforging memory. Um, so that's something that's really interesting to me, this idea that like, it's less about like these events are set in stone and it's more about like going back and remembering things and like looking at what we forgot and like reconnecting with our history in different ways and like the different conversations to be had there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, and then, so we're going to, we have a few segments mm -hmm. to drawing a dialogue. Uh, so E is going to always be starting out with sort of that context. Um, and also, so as E's quote just said, this is always a context that's changing and improving mm -hmm. and growing. Um, so that's sort of where we got our name from is that it's always a dialogue. Um, something that I think that I found very important while I was in grad school and it still feels very relevant is that research and um, published research and stuff. Um, it's you, whatever is said yesterday can change tomorrow. And it's because you have to open yourself up to developing and you're always developing. It's not something that just children do, but all adults, your humans are developing throughout their entire lives. Um, and to be always willing to listen to more information and to be adjusting what you think is fact and what you think is truth mm -hmm. um, is always is like uh, the only way to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like we're definitely not like this is a limited format and it's meant to be sort of like we're two pals also just having a conversation. So it's not like us <laughs> definitively being like these are all the facts on this particular subject so much as it's like here is yeah. what our investigation has like led us to feel is like interesting to talk about um, based on our worldview and like the things we interact with. Um, yeah. And that we can come back to things or we can be challenged on things. And like it's, it's supposed to be a dialogue more than like uh, like strictly informational, if that makes sense. Uh, so that's where E is coming from. Um, <laughs> uh, where I'm coming from is that I'm very, um, sort of my perspective is always student-centered. And I purposely say student and not child-centered um, because students can be children or they can be adolescents or teenagers or adults. Um, so I always say student-centered. Um, and I'm also very interested in giving like a perspective of a cartoonist as well as an educator um, and providing... Um, information to educators and caregivers and librarians um, uh, on ways to best serve their audience and their students um, with um, with their comics and graphic novels. Um, so my perspective is always going to come back to how are how is an audience or how is a student or how is a child going to receive this information and how is that going to help their development so it's always like I'm very developmentally oriented yeah and I think that's important too because again it brings it back to that idea of like how does this context uh interact with us in the modern time in the contemporary time because I think that's something that gets overlooked yeah. sometimes uh like these are these are like these situation or whatever but like how is this impacting us now like what is our modern our current relationship with the material like how is that changing mm -hmm. how like what voices 
should we be like listening to about it like that sort of thing oh and another thing is that we both come from a north american context mm -hmm. um so at least in where i'm coming from and e as well we talked about this um is we will always be trying to talk about things in the North American context because that is what's something that we can speak to. Um, and those are the students that I've served and my audience so far has been mostly a North American audience. Um, so that is sort of the context that I'm always going to be looking at comics and graphic novels as well as other contexts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of that too is just that we don't have uh access to understand um like uh if we bring up manga for instance because that's something that comes up a lot just uh totally yeah just because of like generational uh you know we're both like post the 90s manga boom we both grew up with manga um but we're not japanese we're not uh mm -hmm. like of asian descent we can't like have like we're, we, we can like do research on it and that's great but we can't ever like understand fully the implications of that stuff but instead of trying to like uh, speak as if it's possible to be an authority on that, I'd much rather approach it from like, well, these are the titles that like we had access to as kids. Like this is how this impacted yeah. us while still being mindful of like um, knowing that we're missing that piece. Yeah, we're going to be put the onus on us, basically. Yeah. And also as I as a, as an educator and when we are handing comics uh, that have been translated that are from Japan or any other country um, to a North American student and how they are seeing this context. You know, seeing this um, uh, piece of visual culture within their own lives. Mm -hmm. um, okay, uh, that's our introduction. <laughs> yeah, this episode um, might be okay. like a little bit uh, longer and drier. <laughs> Hopefully the rest just because... Oh. <laughs> well, because we have to establish a foundation and, like, talk about our goals yeah. and all that fun stuff. Uh, and that takes yeah. a little more time. Because um, um, this episode yeah. is about uh, the his Like, we want to try to, like, talk about the history of, like, comics as, like, the how they're defined, our understanding of them, definitions of, like, just concepts that I'm going to be drawing from a lot in general mm -hmm. uh, to, like, establish a baseline. And then um, with this episode for me, I'm going to talk about how um, comics have been mostly been allocated to English classrooms in um, schools um, and um, how comics are treated in those classrooms. Yeah. So are you ready for your segment, E? Okay. So I wanted to start out the context, um, first of all, the history of like specifically how comics are defined is very, very messy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, a lot of like competition between America and Europe and a lot of like very American centric definitions. Mm -hmm. So technically, most people consider the uh, father of comics to be, and I hope I don't butcher this name, I uh, am not good at names, but uh, Rodolphe uh, Topfer. Topher, maybe? Topher? Um, who was alive in the first half of the 19th century. He is... Um, when you say most people, do you mean, like, comic scholars that you've been reading? Yeah, it's like, um, generally the consensus nowadays is that 
he like he he wrote an essay that I'm going to talk about in 1845 that is sort of like considered a specifically a formal definition of what comics are as okay. opposed to like other forms of like image text which okay. predates the earliest American when like American comics quote unquote kind of blew up which was in the 1940s um okay so he's Swiss he um I don't know I'm not gonna I don't like want to say that he's definitely the first because I don't think we have a way of knowing that it's just that he was maybe the first to actually write about it in a like formalized way in a scholarly way Uh, (laughs) yeah yeah in a scholarly way so he was an educator, actually. Uh, he found a boarding school for boys, um, which I thought you might find interesting. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, he was an educator. His father was a painter, and he wanted to be a painter, but he, according to like uh, what people have written about him, he had a degenerative eye condition, so he couldn't like... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I, I'm sure he did legitimately Sorry, have an, an eye so dis, an eye issue. I do not know if that's why he could not be a painter or not. Um, <laughs> and that's why he drew those dang cartoons. Well, actually, he didn't start out doing cartoons. He he was studying literature, and mm. he studied literature, and he started doing um, drawings. And he called what he did uh, literature in prints. Um, and they are like, if you look at them and I'll have, you know, sources linked, uh, we in the description and everything. Um, they are like, they are comic books. Like he drew comic books. And the reason he's considered like the quote unquote, like first predecessor of like modern comic strips is that he had like ongoing titles with reoccurring characters that told narratives and the text and the images. You needed both of them to understand what was happening. Um, he actually really liked comics or like I said, literature prints is what he called it. Uh, he liked it as an educational tool because they, uh, emphasized like clarity and line work as opposed to like needing the really good renderings and stuff like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. he said he called his literature in prints, which is to say a series of sketches where accuracy counts for little and where by contrast, the clarity of the idea quickly elementary expressed counts for everything. So he wrote in 1845, which is a year before his death. I believe he wrote some, an essay called, uh, the SAD, uh, SAD. God, I'm sorry. I'm not. I do not speak French. Can I try? Essay de physiognomy. Physiognomy. (laughs) Physiognomy. You'll be able to get it in our show notes. (laughs) Where he talked about his influences and like why he started doing his literature in prints, um, which were published, by the way, like mass reproduced. and, And he talked about... Uh, specifically like his methods he talked about his influences he talked about how you could use them in an educational setting and he also talked about publishing like a very very early document talking about like the printing press and like this technology and how you can use it to make these reproductions without needing like engravings and stuff so Mm -hmm. his definition of comics or, or not comics but comics you know was um it is really to invent some kind of drama whose coordinated parts are successfully designed as a whole, it is, good or bad, tragic or lighthearted, crazy or serious, to make a book, and not only to trace out a moral or set a refrain in couplets. Um, 
So that definition predates uh, what some people some people uh, used to consider the first quote unquote scholarly definition of comics by Martin Sheridan, which was in 1945, Classic Comics and Their Creators. So that's kind of cool. So this is like a hundred years yeah, later. Yeah, so a hundred years later, Martin Sheridan defined comics in a very, like, I don't have the exact quote of it, unfortunately, but it was very, like, uh, American-centered, very comic strip-centered, mm-hmm. because early American comics were, like, newspaper comic strips. Two years right. later... Colton Waugh in 1947 uh, had his own definition, which was like building on Sheridan's original definition. And his was a narrative told by way of a sequence of pictures, a continuing cast of characters from one sequence to the next, and the inclusion of dialogue and or text within the picture. So very focused, obviously, on the formal elements within the comic as Mm -hmm. opposed to like a lot of these, like, early definitions, because there are a lot of them, a lot of these early definitions, they all focused on, like, it's a narrative, and it's mass-produced, and it has continuing characters, and some of them were even like, and it has to be funny. And um, <laughs> so these definitions were written in such a way as to uh, center the idea that Americans invented comics with the Yellow Kid, which was um, an early comic, like, the first, I think, comic strip, like, with a recurring character. Correct me if I'm wrong about that. Oh, I, 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 well, we will have to get back to our listeners. I don't, I <laughs> <Yeah>. don't know. <laughs> so basically, oh, for a while, the for a lo- like a d- extended like 30 year period in the history of comics, um, longer even like 30, 50 year period, uh, a lot of the like institutional comic voice scholar voices uh were like americans invented comics with the yellow kid and then europeans took the art form and worked with it um and there was like a back and forth about like comic strips versus comic books because uh comic strips were actually considered like good uh when comic books Mm -hmm. were getting a lot of negative press during the uh like 40s 50s and 60s uh strips were considered like wholesome and good and part of the fabric of America. Um, so it wasn't really mm. until uh, Scott McCloud in 1994. I think there were probably other like people challenging. I'm sure, definitely. They were like... No, I mean, we will always... We will always get back to... This isn't the yeah. history of comics. This is the history of the definition. Yeah, this of isn't the history yeah. of comics. This is the history of white guys yeah. arguing about who started it. <laughs> I promise we'll talk more about early comics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this is the history of white guys arguing over uh, whether or not Americans created comics. <laughs> Which is not true. Yeah, no, no. definitely not true. Um, and Scott McCloud in 1994 in Understanding Comics uh, said that his definition of comics was juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence intended to convey information and or to produce an aesthetic response from the viewer. So that one is very broad, like significantly yeah. broader than uh, the er- earlier definitions, which were all like, again, kind of like geared towards strips and didn't really account for um, how big comics is Uh um and that's scott mcleod i don't is sort of like not the beginning point but uh because i'm sure people had this thought earlier honestly but it within again that like these like white guys arguing like who started it that's when we start to see the shift back towards like acknowledging topfer and also like a more like anachronistic view of comics 
Um, because like Scott McCloud's examples were kind of like he's he, he talks about like hieroglyphics, he talks about like the bayou tapestry and like all these things that mm-hmm. weren't really comics, but you could like make a case that there's they're linked because of like them being like pictorial sequential things. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of butts up against our thoughts on the definition of comics. Cause like uh, can you go back into history and prescribe the name of a medium onto something else? See, I feel um, I feel hesitant to do that kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is like, but what you just said is that that you can't just go back and say that these things um, made before the word comic was used in its context because that it was used in art history for other means. Mm-hmm. Um, Right? Am I right in saying yeah, that? Yeah, I, I, it's like, um, I think you can say that there are things that predate comics that were in the tradition of comics, or that, like, mm-hmm. there's not necessarily a lineage, because I don't want to, like, make the assumption of, because a lot of it is, like, what were these, do you, did you, do you think that, like, Toffer saw the Bayou Tapestry and was inspired. You know what I mean? Like, there's, like, a, a thing yeah. there about, like, who's seeing these things that are supposed to be early comics. Um, and also, like, a bit of a cultural thing. Like, I really don't like people talking about hieroglyphics as if they're, like, sequential yeah. narratives. Because that's, like, a language. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it's, like, tricky. But I, I think uh, an anachronistic view of history can be helpful in terms of understanding how humans have always been drawn to using visual things, like visual, like pictorial elements to communicate. Um, uh-huh. I really like your definition of comics, actually, from like when we talked about it. So I'm going to make you say yeah. it. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Um, so, I mean, it sort of comes from my definition of comics comes from, we had a conversation about the, my definition of art um, and how really my definition of art boils down to art is an expression of someone's feelings. Right. right. And then um, feelings is super broad. Basically, if you call it art, I'll be like, fine. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I put it on the artist to call their work art. Right. Um, and then for comics, I feel like comics is something it's all about the verb comics. You read them. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, um, and we'll definitely talk about this forever and always on drawing a dialogue. But um, so like for like a painting, like a singular painting, if you think about eye movement, right, you're kind of just sort of wandering around the image with your eye. You're like contemplating it where with comics, you aren't contemplating, you are reading. You're always sort of moving forward. And in order to engage with it the way that you're meant to engage with it, you always have to be moving forward. Right. You're always turning the page and that's the way you have to read it. Um, So comics is reading to me. Yeah. Which is Um, a different like definition from the ones that insist on like formalistic qualities within the comic itself. Yeah. Which is like, which is what I like too. I like that, that uh, about it being the verb. I think that's a good way to look at it. And that opens up interesting dialogues for like cross genre, cross medium things and like how they relate mm-hmm. do you have a definition for that di- for comics? me um yeah <laughs> actually i don't 
it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, especially since we've had that talk about like art. Um, so a little background for me is that I come from a very fine arts background. I started attending art school like formally when I was 11. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. And I went to like a magnet arts middle school and then a magnet arts high school and the programs were, and then art college. And then the programs were very, very fine arts driven. Um, so I grew up mm-hmm. being taught like a very formal uh, art history, canon, uh, very Eurocentric fine art, all that good stuff. And so I have like, when I got into illustration in my later teens and then college, illustration and comics, it did feel like super rebellious to me. Yeah, because Ooh. they were looked down on. I was like told explicitly when I was in middle school and high school, like, don't draw cartoons, don't draw manga. There was a lot of anti-manga stuff, obviously. D- like, this stuff isn't art. Yes. This isn't good stuff. Like, don't do this. Um, and I had to kind of fight to uh, be able to make comics in high school. And I had to kind of fight to get them to recognize that illustration could be viable uh, as a choice. Um, uh-huh. Whether or not it's art withstanding, it could, you know, it, it, it takes craft <laughs> and skill and isn't just like, oh, well, I'm not good at painting, so I guess I'll just be an illustrator. Yeah. <laughs> I had to fight for that. So <laughs> The hierarchy. You're fighting against the hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. Like, putting I have like this interest yeah. in where since I come from being super tightly within the fine arts world, um, one, my definition of art is very broad. Again, it is basically just like anything can be art. It just depends on the situation. And then for comics... Uh-huh. I don't know that I have one because I don't know if that's the question that I find the most interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Definition of comics are like necessary and useful because otherwise, like how will we know what we're talking about? That's the whole reason we're doing this episode. Yeah. But I'm really I've always been really interested in like hybrid genres. I've always been really interested in like visual poetry. uh, Like. So I I find myself in a situation where I'm often like, um, okay. I want to talk about this thing in the context of comics, but does it matter if it's a comic? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. that's, I know that's probably like yeah. a little bit of a cop out, but um, I, I love it. I don't I know. I'm it. sure I will come around <laughs> to one eventually. I like yours. I agree with yours. I don't disagree Thank with you. yours. Well, that's the thing too, is that like, I'll be like, yeah, I agree with that definition. Or, and I was talking to a friend of mine about this actually. Um, who's like, uh huh. Their take on it was like, I think anything can be a comic. And I was like, yeah, sure. Anything can be a comic. I like that too. Like I just, (laughs) it depends on what I'm talking about and whether or not a definition is useful in that instance, I guess. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. I'm down. So just in in a broader context, I wanted to really, really quickly go over um, when I talk about rhetorical tradition and canon and image text, because those are like ideas that I'm going to revisit a lot. So Speaking back to hybrid genres and visual poetry and things like that, where the line between mediums is what becomes blurred. Like, there's a difference between something that's like, this is a work of fiction, but the genre of this fiction is a little bit fantasy, a little bit sci-fi. You know, like, that's like a blurring, but it's like a contained blurring. Um, Hybrid genres, visual poetry, things like that are when it's like, this is a poem, but it's also a video game. Uh-huh. Or this is a poem, but it's also a painting where, like, the medium itself is what gets blurred. Oh, I see so it. image text is 
a word that's used a lot to talk about comics. Not all comics are image text because you can have a comic with no text. Um, and you t- could theoretically also have a comic with no images. Um, yeah. But image text is basically what it sounds like on the tin. It is a work where the visual element and the textual element are intertwined in a meaningful way, like visual poetry, for instance, um, concrete poetry. Uh, Aztec codexes also uh, fall into that, which is the to go back to that Franny Howes article. That's like an image text that she's analyzing and talking about on that essay. Mm-hmm. Um, Realms of the Unreal by Henry Darger is an image text. Um, comics can be image text, and they are related to things that are image text, but they're not necessarily always image text. Uh-huh. Um, and then uh, rhetorical tradition is a phrase we use to talk about the like history of literature, which generally runs uh, Greece, Rome, Europe, modern America, Europe. So very limited, very Eurocentric. <laughs> um yeah. And canon is the word used in the art history version of that, which specifically follows a timeline of, like, old masters, which is, again, very, very Eurocentric. Okay. So the, the three definitions are rhetorical tradition, canon, and image text. Yeah, and those are concepts um, that comics fits into and plays with and touches, but might not necessarily be fully a part of. Okay. Uh, also for text, like sometimes in like scholarly journals and stuff, text can be used to refer to sort of anything. Like it doesn't necessarily mean words or language. It can also be like, this is a very cultural studies department kind of thing Yeah, where like you can read, uh, anything in a visual culture. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you are saying image text, you specifically mean words, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it could okay. be taken... See, there you go. I guess it could be taken out of that context, depending. All so, right. yeah, I don't know. I'm very, like... I'm not very committal to these things. No, I'm not, I think I think what I'm... When I'm asking questions like that, it's always because I think um, when we are doing like an informational podcast such as we are where it's like research based um i think it's important to not gloss over things right so even though that may have been a boring question (laughs) no no i think it's good to definitely clarify generally yeah generally with image text at least how i've seen it used it's talking specifically about like verbal linguistic elements added in cool love it so comics are obviously kind of a hybrid genre, a hybrid medium, because you read them. They're, wor- they're images that you read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is not, you know, that's not what you think of when you think of an image. So they've always been kind of seen as, is that fair to say that they've always been kind of seen as low culture? Low culture. Um, yeah. North American. You know, if we're talking about the yeah, North American yeah. context. Um, so my... My academic background is in, uh, I understand the comic book history. So I only started in really the 1930s. Um, And it was always, it began in like commercialized, right? The comic book Mm -hmm. publication was commercial. So it was cheap, low culture, the artisans, a lot of them didn't go to art school. 
um, not necessarily you need to go to art school, but um, they weren't trained artists, again, quote unquote. Um, and so they were paid really poorly. And it's also because it was a job that you could get in the Great Depression. So they were paid poorly and it was really poor working conditions. Um, and so I guess you could argue that that leads to a sort of a popularity and a low culture idea. Because you're right. So like the idea, there's a hierarchy of low culture and high culture and high culture costs a lot of money and low culture yeah. doesn't, and right? <laughs> high culture also <laughs> tends to touch an institution like. Ah, uh, yes. Ah, uh, that's a good definition too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess that it does, it does say, that's why usually you only see covers of old, of like 1930s depression era comics is because covers were usually done by people who were trained oh yeah i remember reading that yeah interiors were less oh shoot i should cite that i'll find i'll cite a source we can also <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm this is a digression <laughs> no it's a it's a good one i think um because I, right. I think that's like a really important because comics struggle with art mm -hmm. Like, are they art? Are they not art? Does it matter if they're art? Who defines them as art? Who within comics gets to call their comics art? Like, yeah. it gets used, it gets weaponized almost a lot of the time. Like, uh, people either giving the, giving the status of art or taking away the status of art, I'm air quoting as if you can see me, um, yeah. <laughs> is often used to dismiss criticism or try to elevate certain voices and dis diminish other voices. So yeah, it is like a, it is like a conflict that definitely like is super relevant today culturally about like how we talk about yeah. comics. Yeah. And I think, I think what's interesting is that when I found out that it, at least in North America, when comic books were first created, that they were originally created using uh, exploitative labor mm -hmm. tactics um i was like that makes sense yes <laughs> yeah uh, that's um, kind of the def like i said that's the definitions um i don't have a good transition for you sorry <laughs> that's all right i got it. i got my transition okay so now it's kathy g johnson's segment uh it's called education elevation um so this is where i <laughs> So E does like the context and E's laughing at me. And then I'm going to do sort of the educational perspective. Um, sometimes this segment will um, provide lesson plans and teaching points. Um, Cause another thing that I'm very interested in is actually finding very concrete titles that you can read or you can give a student um, that sort of draw upon these ideas that we're talking about. But in this one, I'm going to more generally talk about how comics entered the English classroom and how they've been allocated there um, and what, how the English classroom treats comics, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, beginning in the 1970s, comics were beginning to catch the interest of academics. Um, this is from... Uh, Beattie's book, which is titled Comics Versus Art. 
Um, so the 1970s, this time period also co coincides with when comic fans in North America began to engage with comics in shops and conventions. Um, you know, there's always an argument for these things, but uh, it's called one of the first comic book conventions is, was in the 1960s in Amer North America, always in North America. Yeah. Um, and then, um, so as this age, as the readers of comics started to age up, um, the actual material of comic books also began to become more mature. Um, and so with the aging of the demographic, comic books began to become institutionalized in collegiate departments because people became, started to go to college and started to go, like professors started to want to teach. Um, but comics were also categorized as pop culture. And so they were adopted into departments that were usually on the margins. Um, so departments like cultural studies that I mentioned, um, American studies that E mentioned, um, as, mm -hmm. as if comics were like a very distinctly American medium. Um, they're also... People still think that too. <laughs> <laughs> Never dies. <laughs> um, and then... Um, uh, and then they're also part of a de collegiate department called communication studies. Um, so the, um, Beattie has a quote from Comics versus Art about how, as the reason that comics were first marginalized by art departments um, and then more embraced by English departments. Um, so here's the quote. As art departments, in particular art history departments, lagged in the adoption of courses and research on comics, the, literal, the, the literary turn in the study of comics prevailed. One significant consequence of the literary turn in the study of comics has been the tendency to drive attention away from comics as a form of visual culture. Um, so this also does come hand in hand with the fact that they were considered low culture that E mentioned and also pop culture, all sorts of things, in that then art history and art departments, as they pushed it away, English departments were happy to have them. It always starts as, starts in colleges and then it trickles down to K through 12 schools. In the trickle down, it got uh, comic books became allocated to English classrooms. Um, so the engagement with them is considered reading rather than, you know, art appreciation or anything that you would teach in an art classroom on how to appreciate so, like, visual art. That like divorces the um the visual element from the textual element too. Like it kind of emphasizes the writing over how the writing is like interlaid with the visual, which is like an interesting and kind of sad facet, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um so I just wanted to talk about a couple of things um, mm -hmm. with how comics currently live in the English classroom in schools. So part of my idea of being student-centered and child-centered is that I talk about books and research theories in sort of five-year generations um, because uh, publishing is usually five years is about uh, a generation to publishing and then so anything that was published this year currently is 2017. Anything published earlier than 2012 is considered old. And part of that has to do with usually schools in North America are elementary, middle, and high school. Usually pe people and children spend four years in each one of them, right? So after about five years, a book that came out when they were in elementary school um, as they're entering middle school is going to be babyish, yeah. right? So that's sort of where the five-year generation 
turnover comes from. And that's just a framework for what I'm about to talk about. So there's an article, and I really like this article. It's called Graphic Novels Surge in the Educational Market by Shannon Maugen? Mahan? Sorry, Shannon. Um, and it was published in Publishers Weekly um, from October 22nd, 2016. So this was only less than a year old. In this article, they kind of go through how graphic novels are treated in school libraries and um, English classrooms. Um, so there's like lots of different theories and what they're, I mean, it's Publishers Weekly, right? So they are sort of trying to advocate for why teachers should and librarians should purchase yeah. graphic novels, right? One of them is a way to engage with students' varied learning styles. Um, so there's a lot of argument between the difference between visual and verbal learners. I'm unconvinced that someone is just a visual learner and someone else is just a verbal learner. I think everyone has some varying degrees of being able to benefit from either one or both or a mixture of either. Another argument for having for comics in the English classroom is that it's true that usually verbal learners are engaged with more in schools in generals. Um, sort of the way that uh, lectures are based. Teachers usually talk a lot at their students. Comics can engage with in a different style than verbal learning. So that's another reason that in comics are used in English classrooms. Uh, Jean Yang has a really nice quote in this article. And Jean Yang says that it's like sort of a visual format that you can have control over, unlike films. So like films are always moving. They have a time-based sequence. Um, so Jean is also sort of talking about how comics are a visual medium in which you engage with through reading. I mean, that's my definition. And it's also sort of where education theory is at right now is that it's a visual medium you read. So I want to talk yeah. about one that comes up a lot. Um, it's called the reluctant reader idea. So the idea that um, a student does not want to read on their own and then you give them a graphic novel and then they are tricked into reading. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> like when, I have um, a lot of problems with this. <laughs> like when you cover vegetables and cheese to trick a child yes. into eating vegetables. That just, I, I think it, there's a lot of problems with this, right? So the reluctant yeah. reader idea, it sort of treats students like they're dummies you know yeah um it's sort of founded on the premise that students aren't reading because of their personal choices instead of blaming the books the types of books that students are usually given to read so it's true um there's a significant decrease in independent reading starting in the middle school years for children and when i say independent reading i mean reading in that a student a, outside of the school environment picks up a book and reads, right? And in adolescence, there are statistics, I yeah. will cite them in our show notes, um, that reading independently dips in adolescence. The, the habit of reading independently is tied to getting better grades, whatever success in school is defined as. Um, <laughs> This is all, you know, this is always a continuing dialogue, yeah. right? <laughs> so there's a few theories in why adolescents yeah. 
start to read less, right? Um, I have a I had an awesome professor, um, Laura Snyder, um, in a lecture that she gave January twentieth, twenty seventeen. This is a quote by her: um, "We are giving kids very old, complicated books. They don't have contemporary language, and ki the kids can't immediately access the quality of the text." Right. So like dialects in older books found commonly in English classrooms throughout the United States don't reflect the dialects and language of today's youth. And this is sort of a famous research statistic by um, a gentleman named Appleby. The paper is titled Stability and Change in the High School Canon. So again, here comes that word canon. Yeah. Um, according to Appleby, a book such as Romeo and Juliet and To Kill a Mockingbird are still amongst the most popular books to assign to reading in classrooms decades and centuries after they've been published, right? So this article that Appleby wrote is about 25 years old, but um, if you talk to anyone, you know, recent high school grads, recent graduates, all these informal um, conversations still show that the books like The Great Gatsby and Lord of the Flies, Great Gatsby written in 1922, Lord of the Flies written in 1954, these books still prevail in the English classroom. You went to art school. You read them. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> you read all everything I said. <laughs> yeah. All of those have been assigned to me. Yeah. So these books are written in languages that are difficult to access so Romeo and Juliet anything that Shakespeare has written you need an English teacher to sit down with you and tell you what they are saying you can't read that independently if you're 18 I mean maybe you can but so that's one reason why adolescents dip is that they associate reading with something that they can't engage with independently right because they're used to having to have a teacher tell them what something means. That's not very attractive, right? In addition to the dialect of the novels that are assigned, the content of the work can be another barrier for students. Um, in his 2001 article, How Classics Create an Illiterate Society, um, and the author Gallo argues that modern teenagers find the classic literature that is given to them in school unrelatable and therefore unengaging. Um, so... Like the activities of teenagers in 1805 might not be particularly interesting to a teenager in 2017, right? Um, it's just because it seems right. old, it seems boring. <laughs> and a lot of this has to do with getting students to like reading. So a lot of this is teaching students that reading is boring. Um, without being able to make connections of their own lives to draw enjoyment from novels, teenage teenagers begin to dislike reading. Um, reading is important for success in school and adjusting what is assigned to students to better reflect their identities and experiences can more successfully cultivate children into lifelong readers, right? It sounds like I'm reading because I'm reading yeah, yeah. from my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's fine um yeah and I also wonder like I, a lot of this is also about like deciding not only just contemporary but like what is worth like what counts as reading right because I wonder like how these statistics especially contemporarily would like reflect 
people who read thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of fan fiction but don't pick up books. Yeah, and it's a lot of things. English classrooms, a lot of um, teachers can accidentally associate literacy only with books. And then students also, because their teachers do it, only associate reading and literacy with books. Mm -hmm. But it's true that actually literacy rates, if you start to incorporate reading on your phone, reading texts, reading emails, reading fan fiction, reading, there's actually a lot of reading in video games. Some video games are just reading at this point. Literacy in adolescence yeah. is actually going up if you incorporate things like yeah. that. <laughs> so what I'm getting at is that um, finding the right books to reflect a student's life um, can be tricky when marginalized voices are rarely published. So this is um, extremely important. Children of color are commonly reading stories about white people. Um, in 2015, uh, an article by Dee Slater um, which was published in 2016. Um, but in 2015, only 14% of children's books published had Black, Latino, Asian, or Native American main characters. I, this is two years ago, right? 14% of children's books published. This is a very old theory, but it's a very important theory. Um, so Rudin Sims Bishop's theory of multicultural literacy is the idea that books can be mirrors, windows, or sliding glass doors. Um, I retrieved this in 2015, but it was originally published in 1990, I believe. Um, I, I say very, very old, but this isn't very old. 1990 is really not that long ago. It's 25 years ago. Um, 27 years ago, right? Um, <laughs> books are more often than not windows. So um, worlds that can be viewed from the outside. Children of marginalized experience lacked books that are mirrors or books that reflect their own lives. This can lead to a negative self-image during development. This is a quote by Bishop. Um, when children cannot find themselves reflected in the books they read, or when the images they see are distorted, negative, or laughable, they learn a powerful lesson about how they are devalued in a society of which they are a part. Right? So all these things lead to why kids read less in adolescence, why kids are choosing not to read. And these are all things that I believe that can be changed if graphic novels are more incorporated. I guess what I'm just basically saying is that I just wanted to give reasons in which students are reading less, right? So like the I, reluctant reader theory that seems to prevail in graphic novels in English classrooms, like why you would give a student a graphic novel should not just be that they are reluctantly reading, right? They don't want to read because there's a lot of reasons why students don't want to read. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the books that we're assigning them are boring and the books are that we're assigning them don't reflect their own mm -hmm. lives. Or if they do reflect their lives, it reflects their image badly, right? So that happens with students of marginalized experience. Their lives are laughable in a lot of books i just i right. have a lot of problems with the reluctant reader theory right but when it comes to english classrooms um the common core and curriculum requirements can force english teachers that they have to teach certain things um so it can be hard to add new things and add comic books to the curriculum so ray natalgemeyer's 
uh, is also quoted in the graphic novel Surge in the Educational Market. Um, and then she's talking about how pictures can help readers. What can happen is that students do start to fall behind quote unquote standards, right? Literary standards. So pictures can help um, with students who don't find blocks of text particularly engaging. Comics can have they have images that help with context, feelings, and environment. And all this has to do with comprehension, reading comprehension, right? And that also helps with English language learners. They can help with comprehending a story and help students. Um, there's sort of a bad habit when you have a bilingual student or a student who is still learning English to treat them as if they are behind and in math it doesn't matter if you're doing math in spanish or english so being able to give students things like graphic novels can help <sighs> help is another weird word but really it can just not treat students as if they are not gifted Right. I was going to say there's one thing I'm interested in, too, in the, uh, like, broader discussion of, like, comics as art and also comics as an educational tool, because I feel like people often put those ideas at odds. Mm -hmm. A very common argument about why something can't be art is that it's for children. And obviously, comics as an educational tool doesn't just apply to children, but in the sense that, like, we've been talking mostly about, like, adolescence yeah. and um, that sort of thing. Like, I'm curious to hear, like, your thoughts about, like, that relationship. Yeah, um, so I guess I, I can get pretty harsh <laughs> when it comes to um, talking about art. So I personally don't, as a cartoonist, I don't really feel any need to elevate comics to a fine art. It doesn't interest me. <laughs> I have uh, better things to do than to try to get respected by the Louvre or whatever, right? But it does interest me to talk about comic books in as an art form because I believe that they need to get respected in schools. Right? Yeah. Because as you were talking about um, stuff like manga, I hear it still constantly all the time is that manga style is an art, quote unquote. Um, and what that does is that it, you're hurting students. Right. Like, why would you ever say a drawing by a student isn't art? It's just, it's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, like, my takeaway from that, too is that the conversation should be more about, like... And I think this goes back to my, like, issue with, like, focusing on definitions, I guess, um, despite me doing exactly that for most of this podcast, uh, <laughs> is, like, I guess, like, I'm very genuinely interested in how how things can be used in a community yeah. and in a cultural mm -hmm. setting versus, like what putting it on like that pedestal so like okay cool it's art but yeah does it benefit anyone yeah and if that's why i like mm -hmm. your approach especially uh Thank with you. like how you talk about <laughs> comics and education um so i wanted to touch upon so this book this magazine bookshelf magazine which is by diamond distributors they send it to um comic book shops 
they call it the graphic novel resource for educators and librarians, but really it's just a large advertisement, right? They're trying to get people to purchase graphic novels. Um, But there's an article in this magazine. Oh, this is issue number 23, summer 2017. So this is current. Um, I'm not going to put on blast which of my friends gave me their copy. (laughs) But thank you. Shout out. (laughs) Um, But there's a nice article in it titled Overcoming Obstacles by Tim Smith. Um, He's got, you can see more. I need to check it out. But his website is called historycomics.net. And he has this nice quote in this about how to bring graphic novels into classrooms, right? And how to talk to the administration and all sorts of stuff. Because there are a lot of obstacles, right? I can be pretty harsh on what teachers are teaching and their perspective. But also there's a lot of regulation in what gets taught to students. Um, I'm talking about in public schools. So he's got some quotes. I'm just going to read it from him. Uh, Additionally, graphic novels can help students with 21st century skills. When reading online, text is often not linear nor from left to right. It often molds around pictures and offers links. Text is rarely presented alone. Our students are highly visual and adept at making meaning through images. Some other topics to include in your conversation are breaks from the textbook, scaffolding for English language learners, pairing visuals with text, and higher level skills such as inference and predicting. Don't focus solely on how graphic novels can help reluctant readers, although they are a great resource for this type of student. The strength of graphic novels is that they are easily adaptable to all levels of students and all depends on the application and use. I just think this is a great summary. Of course, we can still expect students to read traditional texts, but these graphic novels can often be a beginning point to build confidence and to introduce higher level reading. Um, I've just felt like that was a good conclusion on talking about reluctant readers and talking about comics in English classrooms. Um, but in future podcasts, I'm going to talk about how comics can be utilized outside of English classrooms. Um, and especially how comics can be talked about in visual arts classrooms and what there are more benefits to comics than Mm -hmm. the writing of them. Yeah. I've talked enough. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I like I like listening to that conversation. I think it's important. And yeah, I want to this is a uh, qu- quote from that article I mentioned earlier by Franny House. Um, the title of which, by the way, is imagining a multiplicity of visual rhetorical traditions, comics lessons from rhetoric histories, and it'll be uh, in the show notes. Um this is just going back to kind of our talk conversation about um, how things get elevated and which voices we listen to and how that affects uh, our conversations about comics in general and also as an educational tool and all of that. She says, if you begin with the assertion that the thing contemporary readers collectively recognize as comics first begins to be articulated in the 1830s by Toffer, but that other things can still be meaningful ancestors and predecessors, then how have we determined which ancestors, which relations, it is important to pay attention to? Who have we paid attention to in the yeah. past, and who or what are we currently within our scholarly attention? So yeah, like that, that just that whole idea of our understanding of comics, like coming back to that canon and that tradition that's uh, very like hammered into this like very thin 
slice of Eurocentricity and how to like break away with that and how that actually that that also helps um I would think the educational side of things too because like what we talked about with there not really Mm -hmm. being a lot of stories about people of color but they're out there and they exist and there's a lot of them outside of the American tradition (laughs) um but it's like what are we focusing on and one of our big goals is um the reason we want to always like kind of cite sources and things in the show notes is to try to like also let this be a jumping off point for a broader conversation. Yeah, totally. That hopefully will go beyond, frankly, what we're capable of because we have blind spots. Totally, totally. Um, Our next segment is called Letters to the Editor. Um, So this is sort of the section of for stuff that we didn't bring up or things that we did not have time to talk about or that we missed. Um, This is just to make it sure that this drawing a dialogue is a continual conversation and that there's always a space to continue discussions. Um, I don't know if we have anything for this segment necessarily. I asked, um, I just kind of very casually asked my friend uh, Blakely Imberg, who they are Mm -hmm. also a cartoonist, so I asked them what they'd want to touch on in a discussion about, like, how we define comics. Um, and they said, like, that I thought was, like, specifically interesting to the conversation we've had is um, how different comic presentations are, like, or, like, how different avenues of comics aggregate different marginalized voices, like, um, mm. which is a gatekeeping thing, partially, obviously. But also, like who is interested in breaking traditions that are like traditions in the sense of like uh the very like uh, white masculine comic book style that's super popular still versus like web comics or like uh zines and like self-published and things like that that like allow people mm-hmm. to like go outside of those traditions so i thought that was like an interesting obviously for the section we'd like to have more <laughs> But yeah, I that was an interesting yeah. thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you want to talk to us through letters to the editor, um, you can email us or tweet us. I don't know if we have an email or a Twitter yet, but what will we those be? Oh, do we? <laughs> yeah. The email is um, drawing a dialogue at Gmail, and we will put that in the uh, description as well. And we will have a Twitter. I have not set it up yet, but we will put it in the description when this goes live. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so go ahead. Feel free to contact us. Um, yeah, you can also just... We should also probably say what our Twitters are and stuff, right? Oh, yes. Then I wanted to thank uh, Downtown Poise for their song Wave of History. Um, it's off their album Full Communism, which you can get off their Bandcamp. So just Google Got Downtown Boys. They're awesome. I also want to thank Mar Julia, who came up with the idea, drawing a dialogue. <laughs> so, well, the title. <laughs> they came up with the title, not the idea. It's our idea. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Ehecha, which is E-H-E-T-J-A. And you can follow me at at Kathy G. John. That's C-A-T-H-Y-G-J-O-H-N. And um, you can find more Drawing the Dialogue, Drawing a Dialogue. <laughs> um, it's going to be on comicarted.com, which is my educational website. Yep. So, yeah. Kathy, what are you reading? Um, I'm reading The Bell by Iris Murdoch. 
Uh, it's... I don't know. It's good. I haven't finished it yet. <laughs> what are you reading, Eve? <laughs> um, so I have been reading a lot of videos of doll repainting. Yeah, <gasps> it's really cool. I wasn't into it because I'm kind like, of dolls? very afraid of dolls. Um... <laughs> So it's like uh, fear exposure. Well, they, they mostly people mostly repaint like Monster High dolls, and those ones are cute, and they give them really cute faces. So, mm. yeah, I've been reading those. That's great. I love it. All right, bye, E. Talk to you later. Oh yeah, bye. <laughs> <laughs>